Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to be with my dear colleague and friend, Romilly Hodges. Let me give you a little bit of her background. You're likely familiar with Romilly, uh, but let me give you her backstory and then we're gonna jump into our conversation about her new book, which I'm so excited to be sharing with you. Uh, Romilly is a clinical nutritionist certified by the American Nutrition Association and State of Connecticut. She's also certified uh, functional medicine practitioner through the Institute for Functional Medicine. She spent several years as the founding director of nutrition programs at our clinic. Um, and this, we are a teaching clinic in Connecticut uh, in the USA. And as well as being a clinician, Romilly has written for several peer-reviewed journals, uh, textbook contributions, professional training programs, online articles, and has been a speaker at several conferences. Most recently, she authored the book, Immune Resilience, uh, and it's published here in the US and internationally, and it's available now wherever books are sold. Uh, she has primary research experience, having designed the first of its kind epigenetics study diet for a clinical trial run through National University of Natural Medicine in Portland and now published in the journal Aging that demonstrated the possibility of biological age reversal using diet and lifestyle. Of course, you know that as our methylation diet and lifestyle program now rebranded as the Younger You program. Uh, Romilly's developed successful educational programs for nutritionists and functional medicine practitioners and she serves on the board of accreditation um, she serves on the board for the Accreditation Council of Nutrition Professional Education, a subsidiary organization of American Nutritional Association. Rom's been featured in publications including Mind Body Green, Experience Life Magazine, Wall Street Journal. You can find more about her and her book at romilyhodges.com or immuneresilienceplan.com. Romilly, welcome. 
Welcome. Welcome to New Frontiers. Oh my goodness. I, I'm, I'm just so excited to be here and I'm totally and utterly humbled to be here, honestly, given all the work that we've done together over the last several years. It's just been the most amazing journey. And I feel like this is a culmination point, honestly, being on New, uh, New Frontiers and Functional Medicine is just such um, such a highlight. And uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yay. It's just fabulous to have you on this side of the, on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> it's really Although cool. I have to say that one day I should, we should be interviewing you on this podcast because that, you know, you've got, <laughs> we need to, we need to mine the Dr. Fitzgerald brain at the same time as uh, everybody else's, but hey, for another know, time, I, I'll, I'll turn that <laughs> mic over to you whenever you want it. But listen, you have been thinking about immune health through the nutrition lens for a long time, actually, a long time. This has been so fundamental to your work here in the clinic and 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 even before that. Can you mm -hmm. talk to me about why? Yeah, yeah. So, well, immune health is really what got me into this field in the first place because I actually had a previous career. I was working as a research analyst in a, a business and technology think tank in New York City. And it was pretty much as far away from nutrition as you could get. Um, and then and then I became a mom. And, um, you know, you have kids, stuff happens. And um, one of my kids had a bunch of different health challenges and everything changed. Everything changed. And, you know, as a mom, you just want to do um, whatever you can to help support your kids. And so I started researching, I sort of redirected that research brain and I was putting it into the direction of trying to figure this out. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and this is, these are the doors that um, opened and the more that it worked, the further we went and, um, you know, one, one thing led to another. I mean, for, for him, my, my uh, son, he, he had, um, a whole bunch of digestive issues when he was an infant and eczema that came out top to toe and then food allergies diagnosed. And so that was really, you know, the, the turning point was all of these immune um, challenges that he was facing and trying to figure those out. And, you know, not least of which was eventually, with, you know, the instruction was sort of avoidance of trigger foods and medications to suppress symptoms and things like that. And, and I had all these other questions about, you know, well, how do I keep him nutritionally replete? How do I try to dial down what's going on with his immune system? You know, I learned about atop atopic march and, you know, how could we prevent progression of immune symptoms and conditions from developing um, all of those, all of those questions. So that's really what led me into the field of immune health and and luckily luckily enough to um to working with you because that's always been a, a huge component of your background as well even as you've had many other um you know areas going on at the same time but um so it's just it's just been um the central driver really to what i've done and and where i've sort of ended up in in this field so far it's extraordinary it's the the power of a focused mom and then without adequate questions and then your research brain your ability to ask questions your ability to tease out what's happening deeper and deeper and deeper and then create 
practical application of your findings. So translating the science into clinical application, into at-home application, you know, with your extraordinary work with your son. It's just an amazing journey. Um, it's just an amazing journey and one that I just have such a high regard for, you know, thinking about his allergies and just the moments as a mom, you know, it, 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 you and I talk mom to mom. Um, he's, mm. he's older than, than is. And, you know, what you do when there's, when your son goes into anaphylaxis, you know, just moving through this and feeling that as a mom, um, but then being, and, well, and concurrently turning that around and figuring it out and, uh, you know, using the best science really the world over. I mean, you've, you've done such good work in this arena, um, not just in your family, thank God you're sharing this. And, and, and I just want to so recommend Romilly's book for just this breadth of experience and the mind that she, that she brings to it. Um, we, and so you and I were always, so, so, so to this point, and, and I teach on the immune module at the Institute for Functional Medicine for anybody who doesn't know that, no. Uh, and so Ram, Ram and I have, have absolutely shared this passion um, and this desire to dive deep and translate the science into clinical applicability and see what we're seeing. So as we see, you know, the incidence of allergy, atopic disease, et cetera, et cetera, we see the rise, you know, really quickly and needing new tools mm -hmm. and better tools and more refined tools. We've, we've done a lot of, I think, pretty innovative work here. And do you want to talk about some of the pieces that really stand out to you? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. And I really credit these two kind of your thinking and being in the clinic with you and how we, um, you know, evolved, not just what maybe I'd experienced personally at home, but like what we were really seeing in clinic as well. Um, so I think there are, yes. there are a couple of things um, that I think are worth, worth mentioning because they're not always the first things we think about when we're talking about immune health and how do we protect the immune system and keep it balanced and healthy. Um, and one of them is microexposures. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that first. And, you know, one of the, so there were these key studies that came out, the LEAP studies um, that looked at microdosing or at least early exposures um, to potentially antigenic foods in infants. And that led to changes in um, what pediatricians are recommending to be able to introduce these food allergens earlier in a safe way to kids that were at higher risk for developing food allergies. Obviously not to kids who already had food allergies. This was a preventive. Um, and so that was one instance of, of sort of microexposures that led us to say in our patient population, look at things like this product called Spoonful One, which is designed to have small components of um, the top antigenic foods in it that can be used in infants to provide that early introduction to potentially antigenic foods and reduce the risk for development of food allergies and such. Um, but then we took that as well and combined it with not only some of the things that we were seeing in clinic, which, which were that some patients, um, so elimination diets, right, very cornerstone tool of functional medicine, but you remove um, antigenic foods or potentially antigenic foods for a period of time and then reintroduce them. In certain individuals, we would see that actually 
going through that process, eliminating a food and then reintroducing it would provoke sometimes a higher level of reactivity. Um, and we, we never experienced sort of an anaphylaxis version of that where there hadn't been before. And obviously we wouldn't be challenging that in a, in a known allergy. But there are also some papers that have been written that, um, that have observed this phenomenon as well. So, for instance, there was a paper in 2000, published in 2016 from the Chicago Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, um, and they they quantified in their population that they looked at that 19% um, of patients that had food triggered atopic dermatitis, but no previous history of any immediate reaction, did develop new immediate food reactions after initiating an elimination diet of that food. Um, and in 70% of the cases, those were cutaneous or so skin related, but 30% were also anaphylaxis. Um, and they noted that cow's milk and egg were the most common there. So, and there are a few other papers that also have observed this as well. So back to the micro exposures, um, what, we, what we started doing was using micro exposures um, during an elimination diet in individuals who we thought were at higher risk. So perhaps history of allergic disease um, or um, or, or symptoms that suggested that. And during the elimination diet, using something like Spoonful One at a very low level to avoid a total elimination of that. It was just really like bringing it way, way, way down, but avoiding a total elimination in certain individuals. Um, but I'd love you to add your comments as well, because your thinking was really um, key in how we, how we did this. So I want to say one thing which is, I didn't see this phenomena early in my career. I think that it's on the rise, this loss of tolerance, and it's just, you know, part of the whole rise in allergic disease. Like I didn't see eosinophilic esophagitis. I mean, it wasn't characterized until, mm -hmm. God, when was it first characterized? Like the mid 2000s. I mean, it, it was definitely was, after 2000, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, so we're just seeing this meteoric rise in allergic disease, but also autoimmunity. I mean, you can kind of look at it across the board. Um, and so we wanted to reduce the burden of exposure, but, but so there's still, even with, the, even with a reaction, there's still some thread of tolerance. Like it's not all the way to anaphylaxis or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. or there's still some thread of tolerance there. And so giving them just a micro amount um, could expose the immune system to this compound uh, so that whatever shred of tolerance is there is, is maintained and it doesn't dip into a worse reactivity or a new reactivity, et cetera. Um, concurrently, though, I think it's important to point out in a functional medicine practice, we're working on building tolerance along with the elimination mm -hmm. diet. We're doing lots of work. It's not an elimination diet in a vacuum. And then the other thing that I, the other thought that I had was that we know from the literature that um, if you reduce the quantity of exposure, I mean, that's commensurate with, you know, reducing the, the potential for reactivity or, or dropping some of the, uh, the immune complex burden that's in circulation. So even, so minute exposure can be a successful component of an elimination diet is what I'm saying. Does that, does that all make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, it does. And would you add anything to who we are thinking about this in? I, so I, it's funny, I was just lecturing at the immune module and just all of this is fresh in my mind. I, so definitely those with atopic disease, I think that's, you know, been very well documented and it's certainly been our experience here. Um, definitely in infants, I think across the board, unless as you said, there's already established allergy, we wanna be introducing food way earlier than previous and not just peanuts, but really some micro exposure to all the antigenic foods. So they're able to develop some tolerance. Um, we have some anecdotal case reports from practice now that this is really successful and it's very gratifying to see this. Mm -hmm. um, I am concerned about loss of tolerance and other hypersensitivity reactions to food. So yeah, I, I am, Romilly, leaning to using some kind of a microexposure structure more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. And we certainly do have experience of, you know, obviously increased rates of allergies. There are in, in instances where of children are getting allergic disease or like anaphylaxis allergic disease when their parents didn't have that before. So we are seeing this trend. So I also yes. think that it's prudent to be, you know, considering this fairly broadly. Yeah. And I also think of it similarly to OIT, which I also went through, we also went through with my son. Um, but, you know, the concept of OIT, which is oral immunotherapy for um, a certain individuals who are eligible, who have food allergies, um, you know, what you're really doing is that continual small dose exposure actually suppresses immune response to a certain level. So it's a, it's the similar, similar kind of concept with this micro exposures. And you don't want to necessarily remove all exposures because you can leave it vulnerable to, um, to increasing. And should I mention the other one? Um, Let me. Yeah, go, go, ahead, Rob. go ahead. Well, actually, I was going to say, so just thinking more broadly in other elimination diets that might not be immune mediated, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and putting somebody on a FODMAP. We're really rethinking that as well. So this is, these are non-immunological reactivities, but we see people on long-term FODMAPs or long-term, you know, low histamine, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with micronutrient deficiencies and inability to reintroduce foods. I mean, we just, we see a lot of fallout with um, highly limited diets. And I just, I would say a trend that's happening in our clinic and, and, and elsewhere is, you know, damage to the microbiome when there's such a limited amount of foods being exposed. Uh, but so, so an important trend is allowing as broad a diet as possible. Yeah. Yep. I would fully concur with that. I mean, I think, I think we always have to look at what we're doing um, and see how it needs to be evolved because it just always does. I mean, it's not just an elimination diet and done or low FODMAP diet and done. You know, we have to be thinking of that long-term. Um, what does that mean for all of the different knock-on effects? Um, and, and what is the appropriate thing for somebody in six months from now, one year from now? Because immune system changes, your microbiome changes. Your need yes. for all of these different um, therapeutic diets is not necessarily endless, um, and it usually isn't. So we have to. We, be thinking we don't. About we that. don't want it to be. We don't want right. it to be. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Well, so the, the other the other area that I think we've been doing quite a bit in um, 
what is cross reactions yes. and looking at the concept of so this the cross reactions involves uh, sensitization to an original um, allergen, usually a pollen or something environmental. And then the cross reaction is with different foods that share very similar kinds of proteins. And so the body would see them and react to them in a, in a similar kind of way. Not necessarily all of the time, it's, it's somewhat selective and sometimes not at all. Um, and so for instance, somebody suggests, uh, somebody who's sensitized to birch pollen um, might react um, to something like apple or carrot or celery, or may not, but these are potential um, food cross reactions. And usually that manifests as an oral allergy syndrome, um, where the sim symptoms are just localized to the mouth. But I think, you know, what's different about what, what I've seen in clinics, certainly working with you um, and learning from that is that sometimes we can see more systemic manifestations even from yes. these cross reactions. So such as skin conditions or headache, pains, joint pain, or even IBS types of pain as well. So um, that has been an expansion of the thinking, I think, around how we look at cross reactions. Um, there was, you know, go ahead. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to add EOE into that mix, eosinophilic esophagitis or eosinophilic oh, gastroenteritis is sort of for, for, for my kind of the classic, you know, oral allergy syn syndrome moving a little bit more deeply. Mm -hmm. But yeah, go mm -hmm. ahead with what you were going to say. No, well, I was just thinking of a really interesting case that we did have in the clinic where there was a uh, shrimp uh, crustacean um, sensitization, so a known um, reaction to shrimps, um, but then this sort of puzzling picture of nighttime hives when nothing, you know, there was not a shrimp in sight and things like that. And one of those cross reactions with shrimp and other crustaceans is actually dust mites. And in this instance, it turned out to be, um, you know, the reactions to dust mites as a cross reaction to the shrimp antigens. Um, so that was really an interesting uh, aha that that cross-reactivity can really take on um, such an extensive pink, uh, symptom picture. Um, yeah. The other one that I want to mention as well, because we're seeing a lot more health foods that contain um, things, uh, ingredients like crickets or other insects. Mm -hmm. And what isn't widely communicated as well is that actually uh, crickets and insects can cross-react with crustaceans. So individuals who, had sea who have seafood allergies may have cross reactions with these different other new types of foods that we're seeing. So um, yeah, I think it's an important one to just have on the radar. Yeah, it, and two interesting things about that does my case, that patient where um, he had a severe dust mite allergy. It was not your garden variety, wake up with a sneeze, you know, the most common presentation. It was significant as you, as you expressed with his nighttime hives and his inability to get a full night's sleep. And so we did good work with him with a full dust mite elimination. Like he cleaned that house within an inch of its life. I mean, it was really extraordinary, except for his daughter's room. You know, they had massive purif air purifiers. I mean, they just did everything to the nines because he was experiencing some symptom relief. But fascinating to me, Raman, just circling back to this microexposure phenomena is that he said that when he went in, after he, doing this elimination that he noticed he was more reactive when he went into his daughter's room 
where there were some remaining dust mites. It was the one room in their home that hadn't been cleaned to within an inch of its life. Um, and his reactivity had actually increased a little bit within that environment. It's just an extraordinary thinking that uh, we've got to be careful in, in scrubbing everything away, that some, mm -hmm. some micro exposure to dust mite may be, you know, may be in order. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everybody. I am thrilled to be introducing you to Pendulum Therapeutics, the first and only brand to offer Acromantia mucinophilia, a keystone strain for gut health in a daily probiotic. Acromantia is a unique probiotic strain found in your GI tract that helps with gut lining, and it's vital for gut health. Gut microbiomes change due to genetics, disease, epigenetics, lifestyle, diet, and we might lose our acromancia. It's not available in any foods. Pendulum manufactures and packages this patented strain into a simple probiotic capsule taken once a day with a meal. And for New Frontiers listeners, use code KF20 to subscribe and save 20% on your first month of Pendulum Acromancia. Get it at PendulumLife.com. That's PendulumLife.com. Now let's get back to this month's episode. Right, right. Even as you're working on all of those underlying immune building factors or immune balancing yes. factors yes. that are, you know, working on is restoring that sort of tolerance at a broad level. 100%. Yeah. That's exactly right. The only, it, it, in my mind, the only chance we've got, yes, we can do these therapeutic diets and so forth um, and clean up the environment in the case of the dust mite allergy. But if we are not doing all of the underlying, you know, foundational functional work, uh, really, I think our efforts are going to be for naught. Um, so you've written this amazing book that I know has already received high praise from, you know, key people in our world. I know Bob Roundtree was working with you um, as a reviewer. He was great, really yeah. Sung, he, sung, he sung your praises to me in the work that oh. you've done. Um, let's talk about some of the interesting things that you've learned during the book journey, during this dive into the book, things that have shaped you and will influence how you practice and no doubt us as well as others. Oh, oh, well, it means a lot that you that you say that and he says that, honestly, but uh, I, I think some of the if I really try to distill it down, there are some there are some themes, um, I think, that are like the most interesting learnings along the way. Um, and really, those those come down to we have to do that foundational work. So we've just been talking a little bit about that in the context of all kinds of crazy stuff that might be going on. We have to be working on the foundations. Um, and, and we have to be thinking broadly. We, it's no good just taking a very narrow view and, and focusing all our interventions on one slice of the pie when there are a whole host of different things that can affect immune function. And for one person, they might be one thing, for another person, they're another thing. And so we have to take this perspective, which, which is what functional medicine is so good at doing. It, it gives you that structure, that, that broad lens to look at all of these different things. But you know, I guess I'll mention, I mentioned a couple of, couple of things. So this book is really focused on, um, primarily focused on immune health against infectious diseases, um, partly because of the context of the world that we've been living in for the last two years in this pandemic. But, um, you know, 
that's that's the lens. So if I mention barriers, for instance, you know, we'll be thinking for allergic disease or for autoimmunity, we're always thinking about, you know, build back your barriers, the gut barrier, everything um, has to be working well to prevent that kind of immune dysfunction. But we also need our barriers critically for immune health um, against pathogens as well. Um, everything from how much saliva we're producing to do we have enough stomach acid? I mean, there are some really interesting JAMA papers on acid suppressants being linked to having multi-drug resistant germs living in your digestive tract and uh, episodes of recurrent C. difficile, um, even pneumonia. And these are all published in really um, respected journals. And, you know, acid suppressants for reflux, you know, we're not suggesting immediately go ahead and stop your medication, but, you know, there, of course, in functional medicine, there are different ways to approach um, conditions like reflux. Um, so we can be thinking about those. Bile, bile is also very naturally antimicrobial. Secretory IgA, that's another big one. Uh, we measure it easily um, in functional medicine. Um, it's the most abundant antibody type in our mucosal immune system. And it's got all these different roles in, in working to keep us safe against, um, against pathogens. And, and it's also involved in tolerance as well. So it has that aspect to it too. Um, and, and mucus. So, you know, <laughs> we love to talk about poop. So I'm sure yeah. we, won't, we won't mind talking about mucus. All right. I mean, mucus, we don't we don't talk about it that much in functional medicine, but it's it's really essential for our immune system to work properly. Like we actually have these two different layers of mucus. We have an inner layer and we have this outer layer. And in our small intestine, um, well, so the inner layer it doesn't doesn't have our um, there's no bacteria in that inner layer. Um, the the bacteria kind of in the outer layer of mucus. Um, and so we have these two distinct zones in, in our mucus layers. And in the small intestine, um, the tips of the villi reach into the outer layers where the bacteria are, where our microbiome is, where everything else is. But most of the um, villi is actually in the inner layer. Um, in the colon, it's totally covered by the inner, the, you know, our, our lining of the colon is totally covered by the inner layer and the outer layer is totally separate. And, and this is important for a few different reasons, um, not least because when that mucus barrier degrades, you get, you get um, bacteria and other things more in direct contact with the surface of the digestive tract. And that creates all kinds of dysfunction, you know, our immune system likes to have things stand back at a little bit of a distance so it can kind of get a good look at it. It can sample things in a sort of orderly fashion. And when it's not there, everything gets uh, you know, into disarray and you get inflammation and um, more inappropriate types of immune reactions happening as well. So you know, we, it's not just about tight junctions in the digestive tract. We have to be thinking about other things like this mucus layer as well. Um, that's great. That's such a good pearl. Well, can you just throw out a thought on how we nourish that? Or when we start, we're going to talk about nutrients and so forth. Do you want to bring it in at that time? Because everybody's oh, no. going to, yeah. What are you... <laughs> no, no. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I know let's mention it now. I think, it, I think it would be a good idea. So for our mucus layer, it's really a lot about fiber because 
when we eat fiber, um, we, we, through the interactions with the gut microbiome, we produce more mucus. Um, so there was a study in Cell, uh, Cell Journal um, in 2016, and it was an animal study, but they put, they transplanted human microbes into the digestive tract of these mice. And then they fed them either a high fiber or a low fiber diet. And what they saw with the high fiber diet was, you know, this healthy layer of mucus in the digestive tract. But with the low fiber diet, they saw that degraded. And then when they introduced a pathogen, they saw heightened susceptibility to that pathogen and increased levels of inflammation. Um, so fiber is a really big thing for your mucus layer and vitamin A. Vitamin A is really essential for your mucus because it's needed for the production um, of it for the different um, glycoproteins that are in there. Incidentally, these, these glycoproteins in mucus are also pretty interesting in that they help feed your microbiome in between your meals, which would otherwise feed your microbiome. So it's an interesting, you know, we, we tend to think of this like period. It is, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, this period in between your meals is good for kind of culling excess um, microbes in your digestive tract, but it's, they're not totally at a loss because they do have this mucus layer that is um, rich in glycoproteins, which can sustain them. Um, so I, I quite like that as well. Gosh, it's very interesting. And it just makes me think that there's probably some, you know, there's a rebuilding and regenerative process going on. And this is, you know, an essential way that we've evolved. And it makes me also, you know, tack on to that doing a little bit of time restricted eating. So we're very intentionally giving room for our microbes to kind of clean up the mucus layer, you know, to recycle it, turn it over, yes. allow, new, allow new to come in. It's just extremely fascinating. I know we could probably talk about this forever. And I, gosh, Romilly, I, 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 I could just, I could see you sort of growing out this thinking. Um, so important, really. I'm glad that you've, you've brought this to, to us today and I'll look forward to more conversations here. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing, if I could jump into maybe another, mm -hmm. another thing that I think is really interesting um, is really, in, and again, it's going to sound like I'm talking about something that we all have spent a lot of time talking about, and that's your microbiome. But I think we need to, you know, continue to just really understand what is going on here with our microbiome and just how relevant it is to immunity. And again, not just for allergy and autoimmunity, but protecting your, um, protecting you against infectious disease as well. And so much so that I think even in the book, I'm, I'm referring to it as this kind of like environmental immunity. They really are like totally strategic allies in our defense system against um, germs. So, you know, they're, they're first of all crowding out, competing with pathogens for space. So when you nourish the good guys, there's just less room and less nutrition for the bad guys to be there. Um, we all know about short chain fatty acids. Of course, they're very nourishing to um, the gut barrier. They improve tight junctions. Um, they have all these epigenetic effects. Um, they're anti-inflammatory. They balancing our immune system through Treg cells and things like that. And then also short-chain fatty acids are known to reduce the virulence of certain pathogenic bacteria as well. And our microbes produce these compounds called bacteriosins, 
which are basically antimicrobial compounds that they produce um, that act against pathogenic bacteria. So they do all sorts of things that like our immune system also does, but they degrade membranes or they poke holes in the membranes of pathogenic uh, microbes or they interfere with their replication. And there are examples. Interestingly, it's often um, species within the same group um, that are working against uh, pathogenic varieties of the same um, oh, so type of it is so so exactly so like so, the so. commensal clostridia <laughs> yeah go ahead yes exactly so <laughs> and then e coli right so we have beneficial right. e coli like e coli nissel um and that works against pathogenic e coli or on your skin staphylococcus epidermis works against staphylococcus aureus through these bacteriosins so it's really fascinating um they also introduce what I call tone in your immune system, because when you have microbes there, even the good kinds, your immune system always is on alert. Like it's totally um, stimulated into the processes of sampling what's out there through dendritic cells or producing secretory IgA. Um, mm -hmm. So it's constantly keeping your immune system at a, at a toned level and alert yes. to what's going on. Like active um, tolerance is how I think active of it. Tolerance. It's not just tolerance isn't you just, you know, saw it and forgot it. You know, okay, we've got T cell, you know, we've established the the the, the memory that this is okay. It's not that way at all. It's it's tone it is, as you say, it's tone. That's an awesome adjective or yeah, or active tolerance. Yeah. Yes, it just keeps keeps your immune system on its toes, basically, in a healthy, in a healthy way. And then last but not least, it's it's really it's really involved in training your immune system with how to behave. Um, and we, we know there is lots of research out there on how dysbiosis is associated with allergies and autoimmunity and infectious diseases as well. Um, and we know there's germ-free mice studies where you can see that um, these mice end up with smaller thymus gland and spleen. They have less active T cells, natural killer cells. Their B cells become skewed towards IgE production. They have reduced number of T cells, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so we have this picture about sort of training the immune system through our microbiome. And there's some really also another study that I find totally fascinating, a longstanding study, which is, uh, or data collection and analysis, which has produced several research papers over the decades. And that's, um, it, was, it was done in the Karelia region, which mm -hmm. is a region um, that spans across Finland and Russia. And in, after the Second World War, there was a large part, part of the land that was ceded from Finland to Russia in that region. And then it was kind of closed off and there were no visitors for the next 50 years or so. And so the two sides of that region developed very differently. On the Finnish side, there was more modernization. And on the Russian side, there was this sort of adherence to traditional farming methods and working the land, being out in nature a lot more. Um, and so by the early 2000s, um, it became very clear that uh, allergic disease on the Finnish side was really taking off and there was next to none on the Russian side. And they, so some of the quantification of that is, you know, in the early 2000s, 2% of school children on the Russian side um, had sensitization to birch pollen compared with 27% on the Finnish side. And then they follow these, these individuals. And so as adults now, 
they report um, three to 10 times more allergic conditions in the Finnish um, side compared to the Russian. And the researchers are teasing out this thread of the microbiome and they've, they've reported that the skin and nasal microbiota is much more diverse on the Russian side. Um, and then that seems to be linked with low allergy, um, lower allergy prevalence and more varied antibodies in general. So I, again, it's just this really interesting um, view and reporting of, of just how important the microbiota is for our immune health. They have, well, an interaction with the greater, you know, the greater microbiome. So they, uh, they have more forest, more traditional farming. They're just more, they're more one with earth, wouldn't you say? Yep, it's that good kind of dirt. Basically, all, all yeah. things that are connected to the hygiene hypothesis, um, you know, just manifesting in lower rates of allergic disease. I mean, it's really interesting. I have a whole section in the book on on just our interaction with natural environments and some of the research that's there. It's very. I think exciting. it's very important. Yes, I want to just say one more thing about about um, this region because you know I've thought about it for the immune module as well. They have so these. This the the Russian side has more shares uh, bacteria on their skin with plants, so they've got mm. you know, they've they've got this connection, this really direct connection, um, in the in their diverse microbiome, and 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 it's reflective of the environment that they live in. I just think that's super cool. That is that is, but you know, it, it also makes me think this and and. and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, because what that really tells us most conclusively, I think, is that diversity is really important, right, in the microbiome. Um, yes, we have some data that's emerging around like specific species help with this, and blah, blah, blah. but overall, the most um, compelling conclusions that we can draw is that diversity is really important. Um, and so how do we support diversity in our microbiota you know I, I think it, it makes me think that we don't necessarily do it with um, a probiotic supplement that contains just a couple of strains and I'm not saying that it's, they don't have a place we definitely use them um, and they're very useful but if we really want to establish diversity I think we need to be thinking about you know really emphasizing those prebiotics so that those fibers and um, the polyphenols in the plant compounds, which are also prebiotics as well, and, and fermented foods that have um, a much broader range of prebiotic, uh, probiotic species in them than we can get in a, in a supplement um, and offer it often also in, in greater quantities as well. Um, so yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts about that too. Yes, 100%. And then and again, getting outside and um mm -hmm. into nature so it, one more thing because we've got so much to cover here but you know we've been tossing around the idea that during covid uh is there is there a halt in immune system development since you know in early covid when kids were out of school and so forth and i was thinking about my daughter who was you know just in um preschool and not going through the litany of infections that she would have otherwise her immune system was really sort of put in this halt this kind of uh suspended animated in animation place and 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 um 
was this healthy? You know, we dialogued about it here during our rounds and we've got, of course, an amazing pediatrician, uh, Lizzie Bird, uh, who weighed in a lot. And she's, and she, her position was, I don't think that, you know, kids benefit from that litany of viral infections. And of course, some of those, once we're exposed, they're lasting. And we know cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr and, and RSV even can have problems fall out years later. But um, she said people, the kids need to be out in the dirt. You know, they need to be one in, in nature and so forth. And, and Isabella is, you know, but it was just, it was interesting to have that conversation and think about what's right. And certainly as time goes on, we'll have more data points from uh, COVID and, and toddlers, kids in active immune development periods. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, overarchingly that I think we will learn more as time goes on because this is just a totally um, unprecedented situation yeah. for our, the development of, the, of young people's microbiota. Um, so yeah, that, that we will see. I know, I think, yes, COVID didn't remove our access to dirt for the most part, natural environments. And um, I think that they are just incredibly important. Um, yeah, I, I think that the jury's out on, on how the, um, the missed opportunity or that, that period of time where there was that missed opportunity for exposure to common viruses and bacteria that go around and building immune immunity to those, um, we'll see how that, how that evolves. I think we, we can't know that yet, but um, I, you know, I certainly think that it makes me think of um, building microbiome, building the microbiome in these kids as much as possible, because we are, you know, we are surrounding them with anti antimicrobials at every, <laughs> at every turn yeah. really. Um, and we have been keeping everybody sort of separated. Um, that's starting to change now, of course. But um, yeah, I think it's important to to try to counter that as much as possible with these resilience building mechanisms like the microbiota, like, um, you know, good nutrition and um, preparing the immune system as best we can. So let's talk about interventions. I mean, you're, you know, everybody's going to want to know how to build a good, healthy, um, you know, mucus bilayer, of course, and you've already addressed that with fiber. I, I'm curious if you have any, you know, favorites, and then you're talking about prebiotics and fermented foods, et cetera. But it's easy in our world, in the world of functional medicine, you're casting this really wide net. So you're dealing with the issue at hand, but you're looking at it through a, like the systems lens. We can have intervention overwhelm. Um, and this is probably one of the bigger complaints patients have when they work with a functional medicine provider that there's a holistic list of supplements, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So, and I know, but I know, you know, how to think through one supplement being multifactorial and not needing a supplement for every issue that you've identified. So what do you think? S strategic use interventions. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so yeah, I, in fact, it is one of the things I've always wanted to do was like try to, to, to kind of put together these um, uh, resources to show just how much we do with any of these one interventions. Um, so for instance, if we take something like vitamin D, um, of course we think about vitamin D for bone health, we think about vitamin D for Treg cells, um, 
But it does it does even more than that, right? So it, it regulates zonulin, so it has a role in tight junctions. So when you take vitamin D, you're also supporting barrier integrity as well. And vitamin D is actually a nutrient that's totally critical for regulating our production of our own antimicrobial peptides. So it's a little bit like the bacteriosins that I was talking about that some of these um, beneficial bacterial species produce. We also, on all of our surface layers, produce antimicrobial peptides. Um, and they're totally regulated by vitamin D. And they're absolutely critical to protecting those barriers as well. Um, and vitamin D is also associated, when you take vitamin D, it's associated with increased microbial diversity in the gut. So it's an intervention for our microbiota as well. So just thinking about these single interventions with all of their different multiple effects. Um, others would include, say, phytonutrients. Most phytonutrients are antimicrobial in their own right. They're also prebiotics and they're antioxidants and they're anti-inflammatory and they're epigenetic modifiers. So they're anti-aging in that, in that way as well, as, a whole, as well as a whole bunch of other things. So they're so pleiotropic in their possibilities. Um, so you take something like quercetin, for instance. Um, we like quercetin a lot because um, it's good for allergies. <laughs> so it's always on my radar. Um, but it also is known to improve barrier integrity. It's, of course, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory. It's anti-allergy, as I mentioned. And then it's also antiviral, and it's sort of broad-spectrum antimicrobial, antibacterial as well. Um, And in fact, so there was one human study that I looked at um, in the process of writing this book, which they used 1,000 milligrams per day um, of quercetin for 12 weeks, and they showed that that reduced the number of sick days, this is a human study, um, due to respiratory tract infections. Um, and they decrease the severity scores, um, especially in those aged over 40. So, you know, it, it's got all these different roles that, um, that we can harness at the same time. That's great. I want to just give a little extra love to I, I, vitamin D. I am a massive fan of all of the polyphenols, including quercetin. I wrote about them. We have an amazing nutrient appendix in the book, Younger You, just which is a, a love fest to all of these. But really, you know, if, if we had to isolate a single nutrient for its ability to influence the epigenome, I think it would have to be vitamin D. I mean, it gets mm-hmm. top billing for so many things, but my read on the literature and in, in, in just regard to, to vitamin D and the number of epigenetic um, marks that it's able to influence from DNA methylation to histone acetylation and methylation and mitochondrial methylation and on and on and on. All of those biochemical players influencing, you know, gene expression, vitamin D is right in there. <laughs> directing oh, traffic. Yeah. So interesting. I, it's so interesting. I want to say one other thing about it because I just read this recently. Magnesium sufficient magnesium, dietary magnesium, or I'm sure supplemental magnesium is, is fine, activates, in, is associated with increased serum vitamin D. So it, it appears to activate vitamin D. Um, and magnesium deficiency is associated with less vitamin D 
in circulation in a higher rate of type 2 diabetes. So this was looking at NHANES data, and they were specifically looking at diabetics. But the connection of magnesium being essential for vitamin D activation was just amazing to me. That is very neat. And it just goes to underscore just how, how much these nutrients act together as well. So, um, you know, going back to casting that wide net and looking at things comprehensively. So really, really important. Another really interesting thing about vitamin D um, is, you know, we learn in school that vitamin D is activated from its 25 hydroxy form to 125 in the kidney, but immune cells also have the machinery to activate vitamin D from 25 to 125. And that's not taught. It's really interesting. And cell studies also um, suggest that vitamin D can increase all kinds of um, immune cell activities from oxidative bursts to phagocytosis and chemotaxis as well. Um, and of course, we have the data on vitamins, vitamin D status and COVID incidence and severity that's really compelling. Um, yes. And just at the beginning of this year, there was the, you know, we've had this background association between vitamin D status and autoimmunity. But this January, there was a um, published this type of study for the first time, um, a large double blind randomized controlled trial, in fact, had 25,000 participants where they took 2000 IUs of vitamin D for tw- for uh, per day for five years. And it showed a reduced incidence of autoimmune disease by yes. 20%, 22%. So just yes. staggering. And, you know, we always talk about how it's, cha- it's, it's challenging to use the established research model for these multifactorial interventions like functional medicine. But here we are looking at something that is what's considered like the, the gold standard of research um, and just really compelling in its use for autoimmune disease. So Yes, that's right. I'm familiar with that study. Um, I think it was a vital cohort. And I, so... And that's a relatively modest amount of vitamin D. I, and the other thing, I think I, I want to just point out, Romilly, like one could hear this, you know, the wonderment of vitamin D and, and think that more is better. You know, if a little bit is good, more is better. And there's really a sweet spot. We don't want to overdo it. So we just want to make sure we get our vitamin D levels tested and that we're yeah. somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe what, 50 to 70 or so, or what, do you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I'm not averse to that. I do tend to lean more in the 40 to 60 range, which is sort of the mm-hmm, endocrine mm-hmm. society's range. But, I, you know, the IFM goes a little bit high, higher than that. And, um, yeah, what you've suggested is a little bit higher. But I still think, you know, certainly within a very good range to be aiming for. Um, certainly, I would not want to see it below 40. And the reason also for that is because there's fluctuation. And so you might test one at one time and it's over 40. You might test another time and it's under 40. So you want to be at a, bu- you want to give yourself a buffer zone um, so that you, you make sure that you're within a good range on average um, at any time. And benefit from vitamin D, if somebody is vitamin D replete, is actually not there. So, so if you right. are already taking vitamin D and you think you're going to stack some more on to get some of the benefits we're talking about, if your vitamin D is adequate, you've already got those, you've already dialed that in more yes. will not yield better. And I think it's important to, uh, in t- important to understand that. I do want to just throw out being in the epigenetics space these days and, and biological aging specifically, 
um, there was a single study looking at vitamin D deficient obese African Americans and 4,000 IU for 16 weeks reduced significantly reduced biological age so by about 1.5 yeah. years which is you know just another extraordinary thing about vitamin D it's it's got its influence everywhere Right, right. So any listeners are not allowed to get bored by all this talk about vitamin D. It just, just it really is that important. <laughs> that yeah. important. And your, your point about, you know, not, not getting extra benefits if you're already replete, you know, I think that's, that's something that if you see a study that is saying no benefit from vitamin D supplementation, mm-hmm. and you look mm-hmm. at the details of that, oftentimes you'll, you'll see that, um, that it might be using vitamin D in a population that is already replete or they, yes. it hasn't been measured what their original yes. vitamin D status is. So, Absolutely. you know, all of these subtle nuances in the, in the interpretation of research um, data have to be taken into account. So I want to ask about other sort of nutrient ahas that you made in your drill down into um, writing immune resilience. I, but anything else, any final thoughts on supporting mucus, on thinking about secretory IgA, on saliva, yeah. um, and also, you know, any other thoughts on micro, microbiome health? Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bioage and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bioage by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Now let's get back to this month's episode. Okay, okay, lots of things. But actually, as you said that, I realized that I wanted to mention about glutamine and this plays into kind of using supplements for more than one thing. Um, But glutamine is actually a really important fuel for your immune cells. It's actually the main fuel for lymphocytes um, and its use can be greater than glucose for energy production um, during illness. So really, really interesting about glutamine being important for immune cells. Um, As far as nutrients go, again, I'm going to just paint that broad picture again, like we have to be thinking broadly. So even cellular energy production, like Krebs cycle nutrients, electron transport train nutrients, so our B vitamins, magnesium, potassium, iron, coenzyme Q10, and things like that. we have to think about the immune system as something that needs to be able to proliferate. The, the cells need to be able to proliferate rapidly when they come un- when we come under attack, right? So all of the different types of nutrients for cell proliferation, it's massively demanding. So again, like vitamin A, zinc, folate, nutrients like that, that play a role in, in forming new, um, new cells. And then 
all of the different functions of the immune system. For example, like respiratory bursts, we use iron, we use arginine for nitric, ox um, nitric oxide as well, um, and antioxidant protection, which is the other side of that respiratory burst that we want to protect any of the bystander cells from any damage. Um, phagocytosis, really kind of intriguing early data on um, how polyunsaturated fatty acids might play a role in the cell membrane flexibility that you need, that that cell needs in order to be able to perform phagocytosis, which is where like literally the cell membrane has to yes, change yeah. shape to engulf something else, right? And so you want some flex, you don't want too much flexibility in cell membranes, but you want enough. And so some of the data showing that if you introduce um, more of those into cell membranes, which we can do by diet, that, um, that it improves phagocytosis. So, you know, this is all, and of course we have classic nutrients for immunity as well. Like vitamin, we think of vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, D, we have iron is, is thought of as well, selenium and zinc um, in sort of classic immune function thinking. Um, all of these, by the way, need to be in, um, you know, optimized in advance of an infection because once you're, once you're fighting an infection, all things change and it's hard to stay nutritionally replete during that time. And then we have all kinds of other things going on, like iron is sequestered out of circulation because it can be harnessed by pathogens for their own growth. So, and one of the sequestration um, areas is actually in immune cells. So that's of course handy for immune cells who use it. Um, what else did we mention? So we did talk about mucus, different types of fiber. I think that variety of fiber is what produces mm -hmm. diversity in microbes. So I'm for that. Um, and then secretory Good. IgA. Um, right. So probiotics, I did mention that. Um, and then there are other things that are noted to be able to improve secretory IgA production. And those would be mushrooms. And incidentally, beta-glucans are, and there are quite a lot of beta-glucans in mushrooms. So it could be that component of mushrooms that's having that effect. Um, also glutamine, vitamin A, echinacea has been shown to increase secretory IgA. Um, intermittent fasting, that's an interesting one mm -hmm. um, in this context specifically. Um, moderate exercise and yoga, there's also research there. Um, did I cover everything? <laughs> you I think this is good. No, I, this is this is fabulous. It's great. I think I think we've got um, we've whetted the appetite. Folks, Romilly goes into this in the book, and her book is written in it plain language, so mm -hmm. regular people will be able to understand and utilize this. But given, as you can see, her creative thinking and her piecing together, you know, uh, supporting immune health from a functional perspective and bringing in some of these new ideas it just means that this book is gonna be useful and is useful for us as clinicians, actually. I read it and I'm thrilled with it. Um, so you said something compelling that I wanna underscore and that is, you know, once you're sick, kind of going back to your foundational nutrients to build immune resilience isn't going to work. We move into needing different interventions in the face of illness. And I think you address, you know, you touched on both and I know that you covered this in the book, but talk about dietary patterns um, and immune health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe in both, you know, like through both lenses. So 
most of it's focused on prevention. So put, put a lot of energy there, but then, you know, once you're actually not doing well, what's a, what's a good diet? What's a good diet? That's yeah. Great question. Okay. Um, so in, in advance, sort of working on the immune resilience building um, in advance of any kind of infection, of course, we're going to be thinking about some of the obvious things like we want nutrient density, we want phytonutrient density, we want fiber and things like that. And then we want to avoid things that are harmful to our immune system, like chemical additives or contaminants. Um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, by the way, are obviously known for their endocrine disrupting effects, but they actually also target the immune system as well. <clears throat> so we need to be thinking about um, our exposure to those and sugars in our diet, sugars or refined carbohydrates. You know, we know that those are harmful for a bunch of different reasons, but they actually also, it's also very harmful for our immune system as well. Um, there was this really intriguing research that was, that came out um, over the last year or so from the EPFL University, which is a university in, in Lausanne in Switzerland. And there were a bunch of researchers there who had previously been working on um, this sort of artificial intelligence brain simulation technology that they were combining with um, cellular and molecular biology. And during COVID and what they were seeing was increased vulnerability for those with diabetes um, to COVID, they pivoted what they, were, what they were doing in their artificial intelligence. And they started looking at um, mining the thousands of papers that were being published um, for this correlation, for any correlations between higher levels of glucose and um, immune function or immune susceptibility to COVID and things like that. So they came, they published these, this sort of summary of what they found. Um, and they really argued that having higher blood glucose was associated with nearly all the different stages of that life cycle of the virus in the body from everything from attachment of the viral particles to um, reducing our own antiviral, our antiviral mechanisms. So reduced macrophage function, reduced phagocytosis, reduced chemotaxis again. Um, so really affecting humoral and uh, cellular defenses at the same time. Um, and then also increasing viral replication. Um, and then separately, we also have other bunch of research um, that, that shows how it can disturb tight junctions and reduce our mucus layer and promote dysbiosis, um, sensitizes those toll-like receptors to be increasingly sensitive to lipopolysaccharides and things that drive inflammation like that. So they, they, this was what they were coming out with. And, and, and they argued that, you know, our airway surface liquid is normally very low in glucose, but it's higher. They, they, they were arguing that it's higher in the patients that are at higher risk and that have um, glucose management abnormalities. Um, and so they, they basically summarized that a, higher, a high viral load is what's normally required to cause epithelial damage or severe epithelial damage. But under hyperglycemic conditions, even a low viral load could start causing damage as well. So I thought that was really, really interesting really stuff that they were working on. Right? Yeah. Um, there's also interesting research on fasting. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into any of that and, and ketogenic diets as well. Um, yeah. Just give us a, yeah, just give us a quick survey. Yeah. Yeah. Because we yep. do, we, I have other questions that I want to ping you on, but yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So some of the studies have been done in, in those that uh, practice Ramadan um, because of their fasting, and so studies have been done in those populations. Um, but then there was also a deliberate study done where daylight daylight fasting um, was used for two days per week for twelve weeks, and then they were seeing these rejuvenate, rejuvenation like effects on particularly older immune systems and restoring some of those parameters that they were measuring to be more comparable to the younger participants in the studies as well. And then in animal studies, they've seen um, rejuvenation. I mean, um, Dr. Walter Longo has published on, on some of these um, examples where fasting creates um, a situation that's on, it, that sort of, it triggers the um, recycling of old and tired immune cells and the production of new ones as well. Um, other animal studies have shown alternate day fasting for 12 weeks. Um, those animals were better able to fend off infections to salmonella, for example. Um, and, then, and then ketogenic diets, which you know, metabolically are obviously similar to fasting. Um, and there was a study done at Yale where they used a ketogenic diet in mice and then introduced the influenza um, <clears throat> pathogen and the mice that were on the ketogenic diet had better barrier maintenance during the infection they had less weight loss and increased survival and they didn't see this when they used a high fat high carbohydrate diet um, so it was sort of suggesting that the the actually the metabolic adaptation to um, ketosis was was most protective and i mean I, I mentioned that with some sort of emphasis as well because Oftentimes we do see these high fat diets reported in literature as being detrimental. And then yes, when you really yeah. dig into it, um, what they're using is a high fat, high carbohydrate diet, which is not at all a ketogenic diet. Um, and so it's, it's again, the, the, muddy, the waters are muddied in terms of um, the research around high fat diets and um, their effectiveness for all sorts of different conditions, uh, not least of which is immune function. That's fabulous. Yeah, you're right. And we could have a whole separate conversation around that, but it's just neat to, it's just neat to hear you summarize it. And the, you know, the take home is the benefit of keeping the sugar really, really loaded and the problems with it getting higher um, and the utility of fasting and having some ketones. Uh, let's talk a little bit about lifestyle and mm -hmm. immune health. Yes. Okay. So of course, from a functional medicine perspective, and even though I'm a nutritionist, a functional medicine nutritionist, we're always going to be considering these lifestyle connections as well. And um, some of the biggies would be stress and sleep, both of which tank your immune system. <laughs> we kind of know a little bit about that um, from all, all you know, different areas, but um, certainly from the research perspective, this tends to be studied in um, military recruits. Um, who obviously we want to keep healthy with this levels of stress and the, and the sleep deprivation they may be experiencing. Um, but, you know, they've, they've definitely observed that having poor sleep, um, such as less than six hours uh, during a 13 week training, that was like, a, that led to a four times greater likelihood of catching a cold or flu um, than somebody who was sleeping seven to nine hours. We see with sleep, um, sleep deprivation, increasing inflammation. And obviously inflammation um, is a key immune response, but when it is 
chronic or if it's excess in excess levels, then um, then it's detrimental. And sleep also affects vaccine effectiveness. Uh, it's been shown four hours of sleep for four days before getting a flu shot. Only half of the antibodies were produced um, versus seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. So clearly, there's some impact there. And we've all we've all felt this. You know, when you're particularly uh, sleep deprived or particularly stressed, you tend to be more prone to catching whatever's going around. Um, and often these are the missing pieces, you know, have that client that comes to you and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm eating so perfectly. I'm yeah. really like, I'm just eating <laughs> a really healthy diet. I've cut out everything that's bad. Why am I still getting XYZ autoimmune flares or whatever it happens to be? And, you know, that's when these these components of the functional medicine lens really come into play, just really, really important. Um, in fact, you know, one, one, if you're in that high stress response mode all of the time, it's just nearly impossible to elicit the healing response and move somebody through into a place where things can start to get better. Yes. Um, the other lifestyle thing that I think is worth mentioning is around toxins, which I did briefly touch on around how endocrine disruptors are actually also, um, they target the immune system too. But in, uh, in the earlier stages of COVID, there was really interesting data published out of Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, um, where they were looking at these correlations between air pollution and COVID rates and COVID severity. Um, and one of the things that they put out there was that for every one microgram per cubic meter of increased air particulate matter, there was an 11% increase in COVID deaths. Um, yeah. And around the same time, there was some researchers out of Dartmouth College who were publishing that air particulate matter actually reduces our ability to produce antimicrobial peptides. And remember, I mentioned those a little earlier, but in connection with vitamin D, and they actually um, put, out, put out their theory that having a low vitamin D level combined with this increased exposure to air pollution was kind of like that double whammy that really made you um, potentially more vulnerable to, to the infection. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, and but not unfortunately surprising. Um, go ahead. No, that no, that was okay. that was it yeah. on that one. Yeah. Now let's see. I, I, you know, we've 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 talked a little bit about DNA methylation and epigenetics um, as it as as it's right there. I mean, it's, and, mm. and I've had multiple thoughts as you've been speaking along the way that. Um, how intimately everything is connected. Do you have any thoughts that you want to share? You know, just having worked with me on our uh, methylation diet and lifestyle research and now focused, fo focusing your lens on immune resilience, any kind of standout thoughts that you might want to share with us? Yeah, um, I think, you know, my overarching takeaways from, from that work and and all of the things that we've done together really is, is 
just how interconnected everything is. So you, you might pull a thread on one part of your physiology by doing some kind of intervention, but really that thread is connected to all different kinds of threads throughout your body. And you know that really was the impetus for doing the methylation diet and lifestyle research and work in the first place was that we were seeing this, we were seeing the signs in the research, in the literature, um, and then even occasionally in the patient population of, you know, if we're pushing methylation really hard using high dose nutrients, which sometimes is appropriate, but what else could be going on? And so there was this, the, the literature coming out around um, uh, potentially progressing cancer, other kinds of things as well, um, because of the connection with DNA methylation. And so at the time, the thinking was around mostly metabolic methylation where, you know, pushing um, the methylation cycles forward for metabolic reasons, but they're very connected into DNA methylation as well. So, so that interconnectedness is one thing. Um, and then as a result of that, really, how do we best support health in any area was really kind of going upstream and, looking to give the body the inputs that that it needs and remove any inputs that are getting in the way of what it needs to do and um and allowing the body to kind of you to progress in the way that is naturally most healthy and sort of harnessing that body wisdom a little bit if you will um mm -hmm. and so those upstream interventions really are dietary and lifestyle and mm -hmm. And making sure that you are nutrient replete and that you have barriers are healthy and that you know you're doing all of those things that create optimal health and so in some ways it can sound really simplistic um there's a huge volume of, of complexity of course in there and a, a huge amount of personalization because everybody is operating with a different landscape um inside their body and around them and so they're going to have slightly different needs based on that but it is, it's this balance between there's a huge amount of complexity, but when you know what the right salute, the right interventions are, it's very simple. It can be very simple, right? So that's the beauty, I think, of functional medicine um, as well. But really, yeah, that's those of, I don't know if I was going <laughs> to reflect on my overarching learnings over the last <laughs> many years, it would be, it would be along those lines. I would say that you know, one of my thoughts when I was reading your book was that we've got a lot of shared content, a lot of shared areas to um, to address sleep, the lifestyle mm -hmm. components, stress, um, the nutrients, you know, whole foods diet, lots of polyphenols, et cetera. Um, there, so, so my suspicion is that as we tease out mechanisms, of course, there are pleiotropic, as you pointed out earlier, with regard to the polyphenols. And, but I think that gene expression, that the ability for these variables to influence epigenetics, to influence gene expression, is what's eliciting some of these downstream effects that you're talking about. And so I think as we move forward, you know, as this, this omics era that we're in, including, you know, the epigenome, uh, you know, as we move forward with our investigations and as these tools to look at gene expression and beyond become more widely available, you know, we, we will see this, these variables very potently influencing gene expression. I mean, ours was the first study to look at a diet and lifestyle intervention, but <laughs> it's just the beginning. Um, 
and it's really exciting Mm, yeah it's very exciting yeah absolutely and this is how we evolve so yeah you know from one vantage point it looks simplistic but we're really in this active validation period of seeing that we evolved in this you know to with these kinds of diet and lifestyle habits or you know not exactly, but with exposure to whole food, with exposure to dirt, with, you know, getting some sleep, with, you know, resting and digesting, these foundational things really are how we evolved to be. And, and a lot of this sophistication reminds us to go back to the basics, which yeah, I'm just, yeah. it's just, it's just great. It's just, I mean, it's very validating. It is, it is. And, you know, maybe is it a, a, a last um, a thought as well, is that teasing out these threads of complexity you know my hope and I think this this will happen and it it is happening and certainly happens in your clinic and and the work that we've done together is teasing out those um those threads that are early signs that something is dysfunctional right so not not waiting until somebody is sick or has a diagnosis and in immune health one of the areas that I think um you know deserves more attention than it than it gets is is those early stages of immune dysfunction that can progress either through atopic march or you know adult versions of that, um, and and starting with eczema and the skin barrier that becomes dysfunctional, um, which can of course we know now be a route for sensitization to food allergy and also environmental allergies. But you know this that's just one example in the area of immune health, and of course there are many across all all of the different areas, but that complexity that we if as we harness it we can tease out some of these interventions to look at on an earlier basis absolutely you know we were we just had a teach-in here yesterday on friday with dr dale bredesen and that's how we would re- that's that's how we would prevent alzheimer's right you know in the right. best of all worlds so just he was hitting that 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 point home as well and you know i had a conversation with David Perlmutter, and he said, "In utero is is the time you start prevention." Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So I think it's amazing. Although it's hard it's to know. It, it, I mean, it's definitely true. And things interventions at that stage, you know, would be different than what you might do later on. Sure. But yes, certainly, yes. even at that stage, we have to be thinking about how how can we set up this individual for you know, their best shot at optimal health. Yeah, that's right. And it's a lot of what you've already described. Yes, there's fine tuning, uh, you know, once an imbalance has been established, but, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids, adequate, you know, minerals, adequate, um, you know, at a full polyphenol diet, exposure to the, you know, a robust microbiome, a good, good mucus bilayer. <laughs> yes, as you mucus. <laughs> all of these things can happen. Um, at any time in the journey. So final question on this kind of tour de force conversation, future directions, um, what should we be paying attention to? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, certainly the comprehensive and upstream perspective and getting in early with those early early signs that, um, that, that you can do something about. Um, and then, you know, really, I think it's this exciting ongoing march of artificial intelligence, you know, sort of yes. 
intimidating at the same time as it is just incredibly exciting for the potential that it presents because it's, I mean, they're just new ways to examine these ever expanding data sets of research that we can't do on a, in a human level. Um, you know, for example, the, the EPFL um, university use of artificial intelligence for the data mining for glucose and COVID that I was mentioning earlier. Um, and then also, I love this one that you sent to me research, which was uh, recently, which was, um, it was uh, in the Institute for Exposomic Research, which um, is a tool for researchers to look at the harmful effects of environmental exposures, but not only that, they were focusing on, on how diets can be used as a countermeasure. So artificial intelligence to help measure that as well. And that was through the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So really big institutions um, looking at this as well. So I think that's really exciting. And then, you know, in the work that you've been doing with um, biological aging, and there's also the immune aging, like, I think we'll just see this increased ability to use these proxy markers um, as, as surrogate markers of, of, of health um, and disease. And that will open up new ways to do research in a validated way, um, especially around diet and lifestyle, which normally might take sort of years to manifest effects from. But now we can start to see how they impact health um, in a much more practical and quicker way. It's so exciting. I absolutely agree with you. I love it. It is an exciting exciting time and I do think we need to be leaning on the time is now to be leaning on artificial intelligence I'm um geez I'm just really happy that you've you've brought that to mind uh all right folks this has been a fabulous conversation with Romilly Hodges and I just want to remind you to grab her book and go visit Romilly at her website Actually, both of her websites, RomleyHodges.com and ImmuneResiliencePlan.com. Rom, thanks so much for hanging out with me today, oh. New Frontiers. I'm just thrilled with your work. I'm just this, 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 this direction that you're going in is very satisfying, important, and, oh. and just help, helpful. Well, I'm hugely thankful for all of the work that we've done together, which really has been, you know, shaped what I've done just tremendously right from the beginning so I just appreciate that so much and and have loved being on your podcast thank you so much absolutely all right folks to be continued Romley. okay as always thank you for listening to new frontiers in functional medicine where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine and today is no exception not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.